Let's find our seats. We'll get started for this morning. All right, normally, uh, oftentimes we invite children down. I'm not going to do that today, so cardinal sin. I, I suppose I apologize to the children, but today we're going to focus on dad. So I wanted to take a moment and give you another, another invitation to the class that we started today. It's a journey through the Minor Prophets. Actually, we decided to push it back a week. Father's Day is not, probably not the best day to start that. So we're going to go through the minor prophets and hear from the minor prophets. It's always good to hear from the children of the adult prophets, you know, the minor prophets, the younger ones. Oh, wait a minute, that's, that's the wrong kind of minor, isn't it? These were the coal-digging kind, right? Oh, no, no, it wasn't them either. No, the minor prophets are called the minor prophets because they are comparatively short in duration when compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, Lamentations, etc. But they are still rich with enlightenment. In fact, Bible scholars now think as they look at the prophets and the book of Revelation that 666 is actually the price of gas in the end times. So, you know, you can see how that's coming as we approach 666. You know, we're going to be in trouble when we get there. As always, if you missed a message, any message, you want to catch up, listen to one again, you can do so by going to FFC Sermon or sermons.org. You can also click on www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch one that has been previously aired. Well, let's pray and see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are a father to the fatherless that we find in you a perfect Father, one who loves us, one who cares for us, one who expects great things of us, for us to model who you want us to be as men. And Father, we ask for your help to live out lives that honor you as men of God. And we ask these things now as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think of when you think of Father's Day? Sometimes it feels like Father's Day was added just since they had added Mother's Day first and they didn't want us to feel left out. I mean, think about it. Mother's Day was invented by Anna Jarvis in 1908. On May 9, 1914, just six years later, President Woodrow Wilson proclaimed the second Sunday in May officially as Mother's Day. The Father's Day was invented by Sonora Smart Todd in 1910, just two years after Mother's Day, so we wouldn't feel left out. It wasn't made an official holiday until 1972 by Richard Nixon, 62 years later before Father's Day became an official holiday. I think maybe Ali Sadiq had it right when he said Father's Day is the worst holiday. Watch with me. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? See, maybe we got shortchanged. I don't know. I love the Arbor Day. I don't even know what that is. I had to look it up this morning to tell you the truth. I didn't know what Arbor Day was either. Apparently, it's the day we celebrate planting trees. Who knows? That's a national holiday. Well, I'm not sure that mothers are to blame. It, it might be us men. It seems like since Adam and Eve Sometimes we've been shirking our responsibility, relinquishing that responsibility that we have as role models and as leaders. 
Weldon Hardenbrook a book, wrote a book back in the 80s called Missing from Action, The Vanishing Manhood in America. It's on my nightstand right now. I haven't finished it yet, but I know this much. In his book, he talks about four models of missing manhood. He describes four kinds of people being promoted as men who aren't really the right masculine role. One of which he calls the macho maniac. This is the, the dirty Harry, the, the Rambo, the diehard type, even the most interesting man in the world. Do you remember that guy? Stay thirsty, my friend. He promoted Dosecchi's beer. In fact, the ad campaign increased sales 22% when other foreign imports were falling by over 4%. Deny your feelings. Ignore the law. Never apologize. It's the macho maniac model. The second kind of man thrust on us is what he calls the great pretender. It's the, the Archie Bunker type of person who, who builds up his self-worth by constantly belittling someone around him. His wife his family, Edith, Gloria, and especially, of course, Michael, or who he called Meathead, right? He rules over his family with everyone when everyone actually ridicules him behind his back. He's frightened by the world, so he keeps everyone at arm's length by his constant abrasiveness. The third model he gives is what he calls the world-class wimp. I think this is sort of the Al Bundy type of person. He is so inept, he's constantly being outwitted by his children, by his wife. Even his dog seems to be smarter than him. Nobody takes him seriously. And the fourth wrong model he presents is what he calls the gender benders. These are the, the Adam Lamberts, the boy Georges of the world. They don't even pretend to be masculine. And they all have become wealthy as a result of it. There's quite a confusion of our roles of identity. And what he's trying to say is that the American male is suffering from an identity crisis of epidemic proportion. Is there an alternative? Well, of course there is. We find it in God's Word. And God has a model for what he believes to be real manhood. The Bible teaches that you don't determine a person's greatness by the value of their wealth, but by the wealth of their values, by what they believe, by what they live out. Specifically, God demonstrates those values over and over again throughout the Scriptures in godly men and in godly women. This morning, I want to look at five of those key values. And Paul gives us two examples in the Bible, Epaphroditus and Timothy, who both model these five values. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 19 to 30. Now, that's a good idea to, to get in the habit of, of carrying your Bible with me. I carry mine with me. This is my favorite Bible. It's my, uh, my devotional Bible for dads. I carry that in my knapsack. My wife calls that my man purse. I suppose so. I never go anywhere without it. And of course, these days, you can download onto your smartphone a Bible app. Bible Gateway, for instance, is a free app that has 61 versions and paraphrases that you can choose from on that app. It'll even read to you, which is really nice. Today, I'm not going to put the words up on the screen. I want you to follow along in your Bibles, or if you didn't bring that on your smartphone. You can also grab one of the row Bibles. They're there in front of you under the seats. We'll be on page 831 if it's one of those uh, brown, tan-colored Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. And it reads like this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in, in the Lord that I myself will come soon as well. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in, dis in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to, to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Paul in Philippians 2.20 says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. He's very rare. And of Epaphroditus in 29, he says, honor people like him or hold men like him in high regard. And he gives us a list of characteristics of these men. We're going to look at them this morning. They were compassionate. They were consistent. They cooperated. They were men of commitment and they were men of courage. These are five characteristics you'll find that are true of all of the great people in God's Word. So let's take a closer look. Number one, God is looking for men who really care. Men who put relationship before results or people before benefits. He gives us the example of Timothy, verse 20 to 21. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interest not those of Jesus Christ. The Good News translation says, he's the only one who really cares about you. Timothy is a man who put relationships before results. Now, this is not natural for me. It is not natural for me to focus on relationships, but sometimes to focus on results. I am results-oriented. Maybe it's because I'm an engineer. Chances are it's just because I'm a guy. I don't know. Maybe that's true of most men. We're results-oriented. When we were first married... We lived on York Road in Govins, on a busy section of the street. One Saturday, we decided to take a bus trip downtown. My wife, myself, and our, our, our at the time, our, our only daughter, Jennifer, and youngest daughter, of course, she was our only one. The trip was uneventful until the return. See, it had been one of those classic, hazy, hot, and humid, balmer days. And it was hot, and we were standing on the corner waiting for the number eight bus, which of course was nowhere in sight. And so I decided to run into the 7-Eleven, which was right there at the bus stop downtown, to get a soda. No sooner did I get back, here comes the bus. And of course, you can't bring drinks and food onto the bus. That's not allowed. So I talked to my wife, and I said, look, I need you to hide this in your pocketbook which back then was more like a suitcase, you know, the size of the thing. So she put that down deep in her pocketbook. And when we finally got to our stop, which was in front of our house in New York Road, we got off the bus, opened up the stroller, 
And we put Jennifer in the stroller. Now, Jennifer, she has four children of her own now, but she was only maybe two at the time. And she is sitting up holding on to the front bar of the stroller, just looking around at everything. Meanwhile, what's on my mind is the drink. Remember the drink? This is a story about me not losing this drink that I had to get because I overheat easily. I was thirsty. So the next thing I do is I grab Joanna's bag, and we were both digging through the black hole of this bag trying to find the drink that's buried in there. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jennifer is sitting in her stroller that I forgot to put the brakes on. And I am so focused on the drink that I don't see that she has now begun to roll away from us, downhill. Oh, and it gets better because she goes off of the curb, out into the middle of York Road, into four lanes of oncoming traffic. And I am so focused on the drink that it's not until I hear tires screeching that I look up to see that there is a pile of cars all centered around one thing. And there she is just sitting in her stroller holding, just taking it all in inside all the mayhem and chaos that I had created. You should have seen all the women shaking their fingers at us. You people aren't worthy to be parents. What could have happened? I was more focused on saving my drink and not the important stuff. Man, we got to work on this. The Bible says, if I have not love, I have nothing. See, the greatest things in life aren't things. Jesus said, what does a profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? We've got to look at relationships to God and to each other. People last. Things don't. People are going to last for eternity. Things are not. I can easily get wrapped up in projects and and forget the relationships in my life, forget my family and my friends and things like that. Paul says, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. They are wrapped up in their own affairs, is what the Phillips translation says. The man who is all wrapped up in himself is really missing the point. The average father spends less than seven minutes a day with his children in serious conversation. And sadly, that's a threefold increase from the 60s when it was less than two minutes. How can you have a relationship when you don't talk to someone, when you don't talk to your children? You can't. I'd love to come out and play with you, but I don't have time to do that right now. I've got to make this deal. I've got to fix this thing. I've got to run it. Whatever it happens to be, God is looking for men and women with compassion who put relationships before results. And we've got to learn to balance these things. Number two, God is looking for consistency. Men who put character before conformity. They're not afraid to be different from the culture. They're not afraid to stand alone for what they know is right. Putting character before conformity. I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care what they're thinking. I'm going to do the right thing. In 2008, Tim Tebow turned down an invitation to be included in Playboy's All-American roster. He said, I'm a Christian, and that just isn't right. I can't do that. Other guys would have jumped at the opportunity to be included in that and to have that kind of publicity. Verse 22, it says, Timothy has proved himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. The word proved literally means tested character. He didn't bend under pressure. He was a man of conviction. Therefore, uh, well, there's a difference, you see, between opinion and between conviction. An opinion is something that we'll argue about, but a conviction 
is something that we are willing to die for. God is looking for people of conviction. The question is, are you one? If you don't stand for something, chances are you'll fall for anything. What do people in your life know that you stand for? If I were to talk to your, your business associates, your, car, your co-workers, what would they say? Would they say that person is a man of deep convictions about this or that or the other, or is it football or something trivial that you stand for? What do they know is different in your life that you stand behind? People of conviction are the kind of people who make an impact with their lives. When you study history, you find out that the people who made the greatest impact in the world were not the smartest people, not the most educated people, not the most wealthiest people. They were people who changed the world because they were people of the deepest convictions, good or bad, and they believed in them and they acted on those convictions. The temptation for most people is that we, we tend to be half committed to a lot of things rather than 100% committed to the things that really count. That's what God is looking for. Lives of conviction. Lives who put character before conformity. Proverbs 10.9 says, The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. The bottom line is integrity. The world is interested in image. God is interested in integrity. Image doesn't last. It's going to be gone overnight. How many people remember who was on the cover of a People magazine three weeks ago, a month ago? You're no, nobody. But character lasts a lifetime. It's not image that counts. It's character. It's integrity. That's the bottom line. And we must constantly be checking, is my private life matching my public life? If it's not, I'd better change it. I need to be constantly evaluating. And am I, am I being consistent in my lifestyle both publicly and privately? Inconsistent fathers produce insecure children. Unreliable husbands produce unstable marriages. God is looking for men of consistency. Number three, God is looking for men of cooperation, men who cooperate, who put cooperation before competition. Paul, who wrote this, was a spiritual superstar. Yet even he recognized that he accomplished more when he worked together with other men. When we get beyond that, if it's not invented here mentality, I don't want anything to do with it. See, my ideas are good. Your ideas are good. But together, our ideas can be great. He says, if you really want to make an impact with your life, you need to be a person of cooperation to work together with people. Don't be a lone ranger. Don't stand out there by yourself. Work with others. In verse 25, he says, notice there are three terms of cooperation, three ways which we relate to each other if we're going to make an impact with our lives. I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. God expects me to develop close relationships with each believer for three reasons. It says that the church is a family. My brother, we're related. The Bible calls other Christians brothers 133 times. It's one of uh, you know it's a term of endearment. Some of you grew up in churches where you always called someone brother so and so or sister so and so, right? Sister Susan, brother John, Martin Luther, Phil and Don. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? Hmm. I think that's a good term. It's a term of endearment. It's a warm term. It says that we are all family. 
Not only is the Christian life a family, but it is also a fellowship. He says fellow worker. We're given the same task, the same mission, and we work together, we serve together. And he says fellow soldier. We are all in the same army. It's a battle out there, and it's tough. We need each other to survive it. We get knocked around. The Bible says we have the same enemy who wants to destroy us, to go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it is the duty of all of us to support, to encourage, to defend, to put bandages on each other when we need them, when we're out there in battle. We're not going to make it alone in this Christian life. The people that God uses are men and women of cooperation. They cooperate with each other. They need real friends. There's incredible power in unity. Snowflakes, pretty fragile by themselves. But if you put enough of them together, they can stop traffic. They can create a real mess. Look, by myself, I may not be able to do a lot. By yourself, you may not be able to do a lot. But together, we have incredible power. It's like dropping a rock in a pond and watching those ripples just spread out from that one event. Number four, God is looking for men of commitment. That's the value that makes you great. Men who put the cause of Christ before comfort. Verses 25 to 27. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. So let me fill you in on what's happening here. Paul is in prison in Rome. And there's a church in Philippi who decide that they want to take up an offering and send it to Paul to help him with bills, to help him with daily needs that he may have. And, and they got this guy in the church who's willing to take it. He was a courier, and his name was Epaphroditus. Now, this wasn't no small errand here because it's an 800-mile trip from Philippi to Rome. And there weren't boats readily available. He couldn't hop on a plane or a bus or any of those kinds of things. Basically, he's going to have to make an 800-mile journey on foot to get to Paul. Now, if I ask you to take an offering down to Florida, Orlando, would you walk there? <laughs> you get the idea. This is quite a journey that he undertook. Now you understand what we're talking about. Epaphroditus says, I'm going to put the cause of Christ before my personal comfort. I'm going to make this 800-mile journey on foot to deliver this offering to Paul. But while he's on this trip, he catches some kind of nasty infection. And he gets this disease, and he's very sick, and he almost dies. The word that is used to say that he is ill is the same word used in other parts of the Bible to describe what happened to Lazarus and Dorcas when they did, in fact, die. This is no post-nasal drip we're talking about. He was seriously ill. You ever been on a business trip or maybe even on vacation somewhere and you get sick, but you got to carry on anyway because it's just what you have. And all you're thinking about is, man, I just wish I could go home and get in bed. But Epaphroditus didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't cop out. He didn't go back to Philippi. He pressed on to Rome. He kept on going. He was persistent in spite of his pain. He was committed to finishing the task. God is not impressed with great starters. He's impressed with great finishers. He was persistent. And the cause of Christ came first. He put the cause of Christ before his own comfort. Many times in my life, I put comfort first. But if I really care about what Christ wants me to do, I need to change that in my life. It's easy to say, look, I'm all in for the Lord when it's convenient. 
I'll go to church so long as, uh, you know, there's not a good game on on Sunday or I'm not going to get stuck in a traffic jam. Ministry costs and oftentimes it exhausts. And God is looking for men and women who are willing to pay that price. James 2.17 says, Faith without by, uh, by itself is of no value if it is not accompanied by actions, by actions, by works. It is dead without that accompanying work. This means that I really only believe the parts of the Bible that I do. Am I doing them all? And if I don't do it, I don't really believe it. God is looking for men and women of action and initiative who put feet to faith, who start walking out what they say they believe. They are doers of the word, not hearers only. And finally, God wants men of courage. Courage to put service before security. You take risks for God's kingdom. You serve God and others with reckless abandonment. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Notice that word risk. It says if we are to honor men like that, men who risk their lives for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ, who put service before security. The word risk is literally a, a gambling term. It means hazarding. He put it all on the line for Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus was God's great gambler. Of course, it's no gamble when you know that you can't lose. When I read that kind of thing, I ask myself, is my commitment to Christ deep enough to cause me to risk everything or anything for that matter? How about you? Where does your commitment to Christ start and stop? Is it deep enough that you're willing to risk everything, to risk your time, to risk your reputation, to risk your finances? When he tells you to do something, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to take that risk? Somewhere in our growing up around the age we hit when we were in the fourth or fifth grade, we begin to live for those around us. We are shaped by what we think other people will think of us, about our clothes, about the music that we listen to, about the movies we see. And we live in, in fear sometimes of what people might think of us. I lived a good part of my high school life just trying to be Christian enough on one side and cool enough on the other side so that my friends wouldn't disown me and I could hang out with all the cool kids. Jim Elliott was a missionary who was killed by the very people that he went to share the gospel with. Pretty, pretty amazing. He was a man who gave it all up, who said to God, here are my hands, my feet, my everything who decided that he would not be controlled by his friends, his friends who thought it was absolutely nuts for going down and, and doing what he was doing and putting his life on the line. And it was a sacrifice that cost him his life for the good news of Jesus Christ. But rather, he would be controlled by a God who knew far more than he did and who loved him far more than anyone else around him. Jim Elliott said these words, I've shared them many times before, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what counts. That's what makes a difference. Paul says in Romans, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. 
This is the true, your true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. His way, he says we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. The only problem with a living sacrifice is that we can crawl off the altar. Right? You make a commitment and then you, you back off from it. You come to church on Sunday and we sing onward Christian soldiers and then on Monday we are AOL, missing in action. He says, offer. I have to ask myself constantly, Jim, what are you offering to God who gave everything for you? Are you offering God your time? Are you offering God your, your talents, your finances? God is looking for people who put service before security. Paul says, I've got nobody else like Timothy. I read that and say, why? Why aren't there more men like that? Why are they so rare? The greatest challenge that you will ever face in your life is to be a man of God, to do what's right, to stand up when it's hard to. The greatest challenge you will ever have in your life is the challenge to be 100% sold out for God, turned on for Jesus in front of your family, in front of your, your work associates, your friends. It's not for wimps at all. It's a tough choice. The question is, are you man enough to do it? Am I man enough to do it? These are two just ordinary guys, Epaphroditus and Timothy. But 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them. Millions of people have read about these guys in the Bible. Why? Because they were men of value. When I read this, I think, what is going to be the long-term effect of my life? And you need to ask yourself the question, what's going to be the long-term effect of your life? I want mine to count for eternity. How about you? Are you ready? God is looking for men who really care, men who are consistent, men who cooperate, men who are committed, and men who are courageous. Trust your answer to that question is yes. We have before us bread and wine to remember what Jesus did for us. A man who did not turn away from the hardest thing that could possibly be done. To come down and to be forsaken by his own father for the sake of sin, our sin. And to take that sin on himself. Worship team, you can make your way up. And to take our sin on himself so that we could have a restored relationship back to him, that we could be made whole and new, someone who defends us constantly, someone to whom we can go anytime, to someone who, John says, we can confess our sins and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I know I have an often uh, a frequent flyer account in that regard. I'm constantly going to God and saying, God, I screwed up again. And there he is welcoming me back and covering me with the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's remember him this morning who died for us. Ushers, you can make your way forward as well. Reading from 1 Corinthians Chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. pray. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son and that he was willing to come to take our place, to die in our stead, for his body to be broken on our behalf. And we remember him this morning who gave up so willingly all that he was to redeem us. We thank you for it in his name, in Jesus' name. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Tech team, you can switch over.
pray. Father, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his blood that was spilt on our behalf. Father, you say that without the shedding of blood, there can be no cleansing away, no remission of sin. We thank you that he so willingly did that, that because of that blood, we can be washed clean, made white as snow, that we can start anew, knowing that we are yours and you are ours. We thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember him this morning. In his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, fellowship, I never like to end a service without saying, know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. We're going to end with a song.